You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that we have the revelation of who you are, your care, and your goodness toward us. And we know a fraction of what you are truly like, but all that you want for us to know about you, you have revealed to us in Scripture. We pray, God, that you would give us the grace today to trust the God that you are in all of your grace and all of your glory and all of your goodness, your power and your omnipotence and your sovereignty, and that we might learn more and more about all of your attributes today through this text of Scripture we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take another large swing at the book of Acts, chapter 27. We're going to be covering another 13 verses. We're going to cover verses 14 through 26 this morning. Just a couple of notes before you do. For one, I just want to remind you again that on your bulletin insert, did everybody get one of these? Make them into the bulletins. A map on the back of your bulletin insert, which will help you to sort of see the geography of the region. If you've got a map in the back of your Bible and you prefer to use that, that's fine too, but we provide those for you so that you can follow along at least where we're going and sort of see in your mind's eye some of the terrain and some of the things that are being experienced in this passage of Scripture. And then the second thing I wanted to bring to your attention just before we begin is as we've gone through the book of Acts, every time there's a significant event or a significant um, point in the book, I have suggested to you a date that you can write down in the margin. And maybe if you've got a study Bible with notes, it already has some of the dates labeled in the margin uh, I just want to point out, if you if you would, between chapters 26 and 27, you could write the year 60 A.D., 60 A.D. In fact, in my Bible, I've put late fall of 60 A.D. Maybe your Bible has 59. Maybe your Bible has 61. I'm no math genius, but I've done the work, and 60 is what the year that I come up with there. 60 A.D. is when Paul set sail from Caesarea. Now, you remember why he was setting sail from Caesarea? He had had his... His trial before Felix, before Festus, before Agrippa, he had appealed to Rome, to Caesar, and so Festus said, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So they put him on board a ship from Caesarea with Aristarchus and Luke, his traveling companions. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, so what we get in the following verses is an eyewitness account from Dr. Luke. They set sail from Caesarea, traveled up the coast of Asia Minor along, past all of Paul's old stomping grounds, Tarsus, Pamphylia, the island of Cyprus, and uh, along the coast of Asia Minor, they stopped in Myra where they changed ships. They got on board of a large grain freighter with 275 other passengers that was headed from Alexandria to Rome. And they continued to sail westwardly along the, the southern part of Asia Minor. They got to the point where they were just getting ready to cross the Aegean Sea there, uh, heading east to west, and the winds became so contrary, so... Uh, opposite of what they needed to continue west along the shore, that they were forced to go south and seek shelter in the island of Crete. Last week we saw how they made it around the eastern end of the island of Crete with great difficulty and headed uh, west there along the coast of the island of Crete till they got to Fair Havens. And there the wind was so bad that they took port in that uh, harbor at Fair Havens, but it wasn't a good port to spend the winter in. And they knew they weren't getting to Rome this year. They knew they were going to have to spend the winter somewhere. And Paul advised them, look, let's stay in Fair Havens. This is 
good enough. It's not ideal because it's open to half the compass. So all of the storms come in and they hit fair havens. It may not be ideal, but it's much more ideal than spending the winter out in the open sea in the middle of a storm. And the centurion, Julius, who was in charge of Paul, was much more persuaded by the captain of the boat and by the ship's pilot than he was of what was being spoken by Paul. And so they were waiting for the weather to change a little bit so that they could make it from Fair Havens along the southern coast of the island of Crete. Another 40 miles, just 40 miles away, was the port at Phoenix. And if they could make it to Phoenix, there were two harbors there, one facing southwest, one facing northwest, and there they would spend the winter, an ideal place to spend the winter on board the ship. Well, verse 13 says that the southern wind, a moderate south wind, came up. That was ideal. They waited many days for the wind direction to change, for the for the, uh, the the storms to change and to kind of die down. And that moderate south wind came up, and they thought, we've got it. This is what we've been waiting for. We we got what we were wanting. The Everything's starting to die down. We'll just make it that 40 miles along the sea coast there and to the port at Phoenix. And so they pulled up anchor and set sail. And that's where we left Paul at the end of verse 13. Now we're picking up verse 14. And before we get into the text, I want to tell you there's a couple questions that kind of get raised at this juncture that we should address. And one of them is, why the storm? Where is God in the midst of this storm? Is He not in control of the elements? Isn't He able to simply say, peace be still, and have everything just simply still itself and to be calm? Could not the Lord grant Paul and all of those traveling companions a bright, sunny day with a, with a perfect wind to take them right to Rome? Is it not God's will for Paul to be in Rome? And so why the contrary wind? Is the Lord in this? Where is the Lord in this? Did the Lord send the storm or is all of this outside of His control? And does the Lord not know that there are 276 lives endangered on this vessel in the midst of a horrible storm? Does the Lord not know that? And can the Lord not deal with that? Those are good questions, aren't they? Do you know that in the Bible there are over 1,400 references to weather terminology throughout Scripture? And over and over and over again, the Scriptures affirm that God controls all of the elements of the weather, both productive and destructive. He controls them all. Let me give you an extreme case scenario. Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. That was the Lord's doing. He sent the great wind. And when they tossed Jonah overboard, the wind stopped. Just like that. Why? Because God controlled it. And if that were the only verse in Scripture that talked about God controlling the elements, that would be enough for us to conclude that God controls all of the elements of the weather. But it's not the only verse in Scripture. I sometimes wonder, by the way, while we're talking about Jonah, if on board this ship, 276 other people, if Paul was having his devotions out of the book of Jonah. Wouldn't that have been fun? Middle of the storm. Hey, you guys, gather over here in the corner. We're going we're gonna to go through this book of Jonah. We're going to see what, how God controls the storm. Not only Jonah, but listen to Job. The book of Job says, Under the whole heaven, listen to this, He lets it loose, and His lightning to the ends of the earth. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain be strong. From the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. Whether for correction, or for his world, or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. 
Psalm 147, verse 8, Who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth. He makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like the ashes. He casts forth His ice as fragments. Who can stand before His cold? He sends forth His Word and He melts them. He causes His wind to blow and the waters to flow. Jeremiah 10, verse 13, And when He utters His voice, there is tumult of waters in the heavens, and He causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from His storehouses. Jeremiah 31, 35, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. Amos 4, verse 7, Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there was still three months of harvest. And then I would send rain on one city and not on another, and I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the other part not rained on would dry up. That's not very nice of God, is it, to send rain on one city and not another city? Who do you blame for the drought? Friends, who do you blame for the drought? You don't blame anybody. God takes credit for it. It's His doing. It's not that He's to blame. He takes credit for it. He takes credit for the direction of the wind. He takes credit for how much rain falls, how much snow falls. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And He withholds rain on whom He wills. He sends the wind to stir up the storm. He sends the snow. Isaiah 45, verse 7, The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. You say, is God to blame? He's not to blame. He takes credit for it. He says, give credit where credit is due. I am the one who controls all of the elements of nature, both productive and destructive. Why did we get so much snow this last week? You know why? Because God in His good providence and His beneficial sovereignty determined that for your good and for His glory and for the good of all of His creation that we would get that much snow. Every last snowflake was numbered and fell right where He wanted it to fall. You know why we got four inches one day instead of three? Because three, three and a half, three and three quarters was not sufficient. And He determined that there should be four. You know why it's been cold instead of sunny? It's His cold. He sent it. Because in His grace, in His providence, in His sovereignty, in His goodness to you and to I and to all of His creation and for His own glory, He directs all of the elements of the heavens, all of the elements of nature, and everything that happens, and it all unfolds exactly according to His plan. He breathes and the snow falls. That's it. Now, you, like me, may bicker and complain and moan and groan and curse under all of that. Say, oh, what about... You need to read 11, Numbers 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Numbers chapter... Not, one, not now. No, don't turn there now. <laughs> read this in your own spare time. But just because you and I groan and moan and complain and bicker about it does not mean that He's not in control. And you know why He does this? For His own good pleasure. That moderate south wind that came up and hit the island of Crete, Who sent that moderate south wind? The Lord did. Now, He could have kept it really tumultuous and really violent from the south and forced them to stay the winter at Fair Havens. That's not what the Lord wanted. You know what the Lord wanted? He wanted that idiotic captain and that pilot to set sail from Fair Havens and to get pushed out into the middle of the sea. And so the Lord accomplished just what He wanted. He sent a moderate south wind, and they said, Oh, we'll take the opportunity. And they got out there just in time for the Lord to do something totally different with the elements. 
But friends, it's important for you to understand that because if you don't understand that God is the one who is behind the storm and that he controls all of that, then no matter what it is that you face, no matter what it is that you're doing, you're not going to be able to trust him. Why pray to him in the midst of the storm if you don't believe that he can do anything about it? Why do that? You know why we do it? Because he sends the rain, he sends the wind, he sends the clouds, he directs their course, he directs the strength of it. And friends, whether it is a gentle summer breeze that pollinates the fruit trees and spreads the flower seeds and that we go out in and we rejoice in and we love and we soak it up, whether it is that or whether it is a hurricane or a tornado, he sends the wind, he directs the course of it, he determines who it hits and who it falls on. You say, I don't like a God that would do such a thing. I don't care whether you like him or not. He takes credit for it and he says, I am the one who has done this. He says to Isaiah, through Isaiah, give me credit where my credit is due. I am the one who caused the blessing and I am the one who caused the calamity. And then you get some, in the wake of a hurricane or a disaster, some natural disaster of some sort, you get some wild-eyed Christian who comes on television and says, oh, no, no, that wasn't God's will. God doesn't control that. He would never will for anything like that to happen. Really? What did I just read to you? Those things outside of his providence and outside of his sovereign control? They're not at all. How do you respond in the midst of the storm? That's what we're going to see today from the Apostle Paul. Let's pick it up in verse 14. We're going to go over verses 14 through verse 26. For convenience sake, divide it up into three sections. First of all, they face a disaster. Second, they they felt despair. And third, they are promised deliverance. So let's look at verses 14 through 19, how they face disaster. Before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uraquilo. Now they're sailing west along the southern coast of the island of Crete, hoping to get to that harbor. And before long, Luke says, they were probably out there maybe an hour, maybe two hours, maybe halfway to the port of Phoenix. Before too long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called the Uraquilo. Uraquilo is a hybrid word from two different words. One of them, a Greek word, euros, meaning Easter, or not Easter, east or easterly, as in from the east, and Latin, aquilo, meaning from the north, a north wind. So you have a northeast wind that comes down off the island of Crete and slams into the starboard side of the ship. And they've just pulled up the anchor and they're heading along the southern side of the, the island and all of a sudden there is this northeast wind, a violent one, Luke says. Now listen, what do you get when you have a, a mild, moderate south wind coming in from the south, and then you have a violent northeast wind that comes in from the northeast on top of that? What do you have right in the middle? You know what you have? It's the eye of the storm. I mean, conditions could not be worse than right there where those two things meet. James Smith in his book, Voyage and Shipwreck, in which he spends an entire book just talking about Acts 27, by the way, just this sea voyage. He's a, 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 a sailor that's familiar with the currents and the Mediterranean and all of the weather patterns there. He wrote this book, and here's what he says. The sudden change from a south wind to a violent northerly wind is a common occurrence in these seas. The term typhonic, by which it is described, indicates that it was accompanied by some of the phenomena which might be expected in such a case, Namely, the agitation and swirling motion of the clouds caused by a meeting of the opposite currents of air when the change took place. Luke says it was a violent wind. Tuphonikos is the word. Does that sound familiar to you? Tuphonikos. Typhoon is a word that sounds familiar in the English, doesn't it? Typhonic is literally the transliteration of the Greek. It was a violent wind, a typhonic wind, a horrible wind. 
that came in off of the coast of Crete. Now, does the Lord not control that? Sure, He controls it. He controls the force of it. And he controlled the direction of it. And He controlled the timing of it. All for His sovereign plan and the accomplishment of His good pleasure. So look what Luke says, verse 14. Before there was, before long there rushed down this violent wind, the Uroquilo, and when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. What else are you going to do? Right? It's kind of a, it starts off as sort of a hopeless scenario, doesn't it? You're sailing along and when that wind hits you, Luke says we were caught in it, we couldn't go into it, we couldn't do anything, so we let ourselves be driven along. You can take all the passengers and all the crew and you can start bringing down the sails and steering hard on the rudder and getting out the paddles and doing everything you can to keep that boat close to shore. But with that wind hitting you, Luke says, we just let ourselves be driven along. There's nothing else you can do but sit there and watch yourselves drift away from shore. And listen, how hopeless of a feeling is that? You're sailing along the coast and all of a sudden you get hit by this wind and you're fighting against it and fighting against it and pretty soon you realize, you know what, we're getting farther and farther away from shore. It's getting farther and farther away. And then with all of the rain and with all of the wind and with all of the fog and the clouds and everything else, pretty soon you realize you can just barely see the land. It's starting to lose visibility. And then you're, the most dreaded thing that you could possibly have happen is for you to lose sight of the land on your starboard side and to realize that the wind is not letting up and you're being forced out into the open sea in the middle of winter. That's a horrible predicament, isn't it? That in itself is enough to make all of the, the blood just drain from your body as you realize this wind is not letting up and there's nothing we can do and we've just lost sight of land and now we're being driven out into the open sea. Verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda. You can't see that on your map, by the way. It's too small to be noticed on the map, but it's just to the south of the island of Crete and you can kind of see where the little yellow line sort of comes up and forms a U there and heads back to the island of Crete. That's where the island of Clauda was located. And they let themselves be carried away until they found that island. And they sort of tried to steer themselves toward that island. When they got to that island, they started to take five measures that Luke is going to describe to us. Five measures that illustrate to us the dire situation that they're facing. The first is in verse 17. Or verse 16. The end of verse 16. They sought refuge under the shelter of the island called Clauda. And we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. That refers to the dinghy or the lifeboat that large grain freighters like that would carry in tow behind them. And during the rough weather and during the harsh weather and the waves would get big enough, they would haul the lifeboat on board because they didn't want the waves smashing the lifeboat and the ship together because that causes damage. So Luke says the very first thing they did once they got under the shelter of the island of Clauda, they realized we need to take drastic measures to keep from being pushed from this island farther out into the open sea. So the first thing they did was they brought on board the lifeboat. And Luke says they were barely able to get the ship's boat under control. It was with much effort that they brought the lifeboat on board. You know why? What was it probably full of by this time? Water. Probably full of water. So they hoisted the ship's lifeboat on board. The second thing that they do... Verse 17, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. The second drastic measure that they did is they took cables and they would hold on to them, one on each side of the boat, and they would loop them underneath the front of the boat, and they would drag them underneath the boat until they got sort of underneath the bottom of the boat, and then they would detach them on one side, and they would winch them tight on the second side. It was called frapping, F-R-A-P-P-I-N-G, frapping the boat. And they would take these ropes and these cables, and they would wrap them under the bottom of the boat, winch them tight to hold everything together. That's a desperate measure. You know why? 
Because that tells us that the boat was creaking and cracking and leaking and boards were starting to loosen up. So they began to frap the boat and wrap it with these cables undergirding the ship. The third drastic measure that they take, look at it, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor. Now the shallows of Sirtis are 180 miles to the south, right off the coast of Libya. 180 miles to the south. Now, 180 miles away, you think, that's a long ways away. Why are you taking measures to keep yourself from running aground on the shallows of Sirtis? Because the shallows of Sirtis were the Bermuda Triangle of the day. They were a ship graveyard. They were notorious for taking down ships. And even though they were 180 miles away, you know that eventually they're going to get there if the wind continues in that direction. And so they did two things. I think the King James and the New King James says they let down the mainsail. The NIV and the NASB says they put out the sea anchor. The phrase literally means they let down the gear. And it referred to everything that was used to sort of slow down the ship. It was two things. They would bring down the mainsail so it wasn't catching wind anymore. And then they would throw out the sea anchor. So they did both of these things. They let down all the gear. They threw out the sea anchor, which was not the kind that was designed to drag along the floor of the ocean. That's too deep for them. What they did is they threw out like a, a drag anchor. It was a sea anchor that was did in the water what a parachute does in the air, sort of slows your progress. That's all they can do. They bring down the mainsail, they throw out the sea anchor, and all they can hope is that that's going to create enough drag that they will not get to the shallows of Sirtis before this wind lets up. The fifth drastic measure that they took, or fourth, sorry, the fourth drastic measure that they took, verse 18, the next day as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. Now you know that when the ship's captain and the ship pilot start throwing their money overboard, you know things have gotten bad, don't you? That grain that was on board that ship was their bread and butter. That was all of his profit. That was the profit for the crew. And so they go down into the hull of the ship and they start grabbing grain, bringing it up on board deck and tossing it over, jettisoning the ship's cargo. Rome did not look favorably on captains and crews that lost their cargo, their grain, on the way to Rome. So the captain and the pilot decide it's better to throw our money overboard than it is to die. Now they didn't jettison all of the cargo because we're going to get to verse 38 and it says that they began to pitch more of the grain overboard. But they jettisoned enough that they thought had lightened the ship adequately. The fifth drastic measure that they take is they begin to jettison the ship's tackle. That word tackle is used to refer to anything that was not necessary for keeping the ship together. Everything that was used for sailing, the pulleys, the cables, the spare ropes, Everything that was that they could get rid of, they got rid of. It even referred to the, that giant spar, that giant mass that was attached to the ship that, to which the mainsail was attached. They took that off, and Luke says they threw that overboard with their own hands. Now what do you do? You see how drastic this is? The minute they get in behind that island, the captain and the crew said, okay, let's get ready to float at sea because we know the wind is not letting up. And so they pull in the dinghy, they jettison the cargo, they let down the mainsail, put out the sea anchor, they jettison all of the tackle. Friends, they are taking all of the drastic measures that they can take in order just to keep that ship in one piece so that it won't be torn apart by the the waves. And they even undergirded the ship with those cables and with those ropes. I mean, that is some that is some dark and depressing times if you're going to those kind of measures. I've always read through this, and you know, you read through it like you probably have done this too. You read through chapter 27 because you want to get to chapter 28 or even the end of the book and be done with it. And you kind of skip over this stuff. Okay, it was a bad thing. They did this. They threw out some grain. And you, you stop to realize and put some color to this, and you realize how desperate things have gotten. 
This thing is, they're hoping to just make this boat a buoy in the middle of the sea and everybody cling to it until the storm is over. That's the disaster that they faced. A second, I want you to look at the despair that they felt. Look at verse 20. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days. How many days? Luke doesn't tell us, but we can do a little bit of math because in verse 27, we read that after they left Fairhavens on the 14th night, something happened. And up in verse 19, it says, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. So you got an 11-day span. So most of that 11 days is probably what Luke is referring to when he says, for many days, the stars and the sun were not to be seen. Now, this is the fall of the year. And you know what happens in the fall of the year with the sun? The days start to get shorter, not longer. The nights start to get colder. And the rain is there and the wind is there and they're out on the open sea. And in the daytime, they cannot see the sun. Why? Because the clouds are so thick. They can't even get a beat on where the sun is at. It's just lighter during the day than it is at night. And then the night sets in. And when the night sets in, you can just hope that you can cling to a rope or the ship in some way to last through the night. And maybe by daybreak, things will calm down a little bit. But that didn't happen for 11 long days. Now, if you can't see the stars and you can't see the sun... You can't navigate. You can't navigate. How helpless is it to be drifted along, carried along by the wind, and you don't even know what, from what direction the wind is coming or what direction you're being pushed? Is land nearby? You don't know that either. Maybe land is just 10 yards past your visibility plane. Maybe there's an island or a chunk of land, but you can't see it, and you don't know that because you have no way to navigate. And you don't know if you're being pushed north, south, east, west, or if you're standing still. You don't know any of that. You don't know how fast you're being pulled along. You don't know at what pace you're being pulled along. You don't know what direction you're heading. You don't know if land is nearby, if you're going into the open sea, if you're going back to Jerusalem, if you're being pushed closer to Rome. You don't know any of that. And that would just cause despair to set in, which is what Luke says happened. Many days after that, I mean one day, two days, three days. And how do you sleep in a situation like that, by the way? How do you sleep on board a ship that's going through all of that? Four days, five days, six days, and you start to get a little frustrated with the wind and the cloud and the rain and all of that stuff. Out there for six days and seven days and eight days and nine days, you start to get snippy with your shipmates. The lack of sleep is driving you nuts, and you're tired of people complaining and bickering about it. And six days, and was it six or was it nine days? Where did we lose count at? You know, after a while you start to lose count of how many days you've been through all of this. How many days and nights has it been? Has anybody been keeping track? Luke was keeping track. And it was many days without any sight of any kind of hope. And Luke says from that point on, all hope of being saved gradually abandoned. The wind, the rain, the waves just eroded their confidence, eroded their hope. Listen, friends, they're at sea, and it's no longer a question in their minds of if they're going to be saved or if they're going to die. It's just a matter of when they're going to die. They've kind of reached the point where it's just, you know, we're resigned to dying. And so when the ship finally breaks apart and we're all floating around on boards in this cold Mediterranean Sea, do you, do you try and cling on for dear life as long as you can, or do you just kind of give up and sink to the bottom of the ocean, or do you pray that a shark would come along and eat you and make it a fast death, and you start to... I mean, you got that looming reality of drowning that's looming over your head. 
And it's there for days because day after day after day, it's the same thing. And the ship creaks and the ship groans and the wind blows. And all hope of being saved, you just start giving up. Man, I guess I'm ready to go. I'm ready to die. This is it. I've had enough. That's despair. As one commentator writes, only those who have been in a violent storm at sea can fully appreciate the terror of the passengers and crew must have felt. The towering white-capped seas, the roaring of the wind, the violent rocking of the ship as first the bow and then the stern rose high in the air only to plunge quickly down again. The constant motion inducing seasickness and making it difficult to stand, let alone walk. The wind-driven salt spray stinging and blinding those exposed on the deck. And worst of all, the looming reality of an awful death by drowning All those factors combine to unnerve even the most experienced sailor. Captain, pilot, crew, passengers gave up hope. We're not going to be saved. It's just time to die. That's despair. Now, I'd love to leave you and say, let's close in prayer and come back next week and find out what happened. But we still have time left to use up. So we'll see what happens. Friends, it's in the right into the, the middle of this darkness that this ray of hope beams. We learn a lot from this ray of hope and what Paul does with it. Look at verse 21. And when they had gone a long time without food, and by the way, why, why have they gone a long time without food? Why do you think Luke mentions that? A couple of people just signaled as to why you go a long time without food. I don't know if you've ever been seasick. And I'm not talking seasick to the point where you chum overboard and you say, oh, I feel better now. I could use a sandwich. But I mean seasick to the point of incapacitation. Seasick to the point where you cannot lift your head off of a table. You cannot lift your head off of the deck. You're, you're tying a rope around your waist and you're just laying there praying that the ship would sink. At least I prayed that the boat that I was on would sink. That type of seasickness. And when that happens, friends, you don't want to eat. It's a couple of hours back on land before you even begin to think about food. Because, and I don't want to belabor the point, but you get to the point where you cannot You cannot chum anything. There's nothing left to throw up. You're dehydrated. You can't throw up anything. All you can do is heave like you're in labor and wish that something would come up. On the land, what goes up must come down. On the sea, what goes down must come up. You don't eat and you don't want to eat. Seasickness is a reality even for the most experienced sailor. That up and down motion, friends, I I can get seasick so easy. I can't even watch a boat being pitched about on the sea without getting nauseous. And there were likely passengers on board that ship. And Luke says, we went many days without food. You know why else they would have gone without food? The despair. You know what despairing of life does to an individual? When an individual resigns himself to die, you know what happens? Talk to somebody who's been around somebody with a terminal illness. When they get ready to die, you know what what stops? They stop eating. They don't even feel the hunger pains anymore. When you have resigned yourself to death, you don't think about food. You're just praying for death. And the only thing you're wondering is, am I going to starve to death, or am I going to freeze to death, or am I going to drown to death? How am I going to die? When you despair to that point, you've given up eating. They don't eat for many days. There's a third thing that probably probably played into this, and that's the inability to prepare food. Inability to prepare food. Prep, you know, making a sandwich on board a ship like that's kind of difficult. Chasing around a bottle of mayonnaise, chasing around a loaf of bread. Pass me the chips, and you get a bag full of water with some, some soggy stuff in it. You can't prepare food on board a ship like that. And most of the food had probably been spoiled. John Newton, you know who John Newton is? Author of Amazing Grace, the hymn we sing. He was a slave trader at one time, sailed those seas around there all the time. 
before he got saved. He was a slave trader and, and ran a ship before he got saved and converted and went into ministry in, the, in England. And he writes of an experience that he had on board a ship that was much like Paul's. And listen to what he writes. John Newton said, We found that the water, having floated all of our movables in the hold, all the casks of provisions had been beaten into pieces by the violent motion of the ship. And on the other hand, all our livestock, such as pigs, sheep, and poultry, had been washed overboard in the storm. In effect, all the provisions that we saved would have subsisted us but a week at a scanty allowance. In other words, everything had been spoiled by the seawater. You go down into the hold of the ship and say, let's go down and get some bread and meat for a sandwich. And then you find that all the casks that had been down there floating in the water and have been bashed together in the storm, and all of your food has been spoiled by the seawater. Probably didn't have much to eat. Probably didn't have a lot of fresh water to drink. So they went many days without food. Now that's, that just gets depressing, doesn't it? Look at verse 21. It does get better, I promise. Look at verse 21. Then Paul stood up in the midst and he said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not sailed from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Can I translate that for you? See, I told you so. That's exactly what went through your right mind, right? Because you remember the advice that Paul said. Let's stay in fair havens. Yeah, it's not an ideal port, but it's far better than being out at the open sea, don't you think? And that's what he's thinking in his mind. I told you this was going to happen. Now, I think Paul begins with that, not because he's saying, no, 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 I told you so, but I think he's trying to remind them, look, I'm not the inexperienced dope that you think I am. Listen to what I'm saying. I gave you good advice in the beginning, and this is what I counseled you not to do, and now that you've done it, we are stuck in this situation. So he is gaining credibility with his audience by reminding them of the counsel that he gave them because he's about ready to sort of take control of the situation and give them even more counsel. You ought to have taken my advice, he says, and not have sailed from Crete and incurred the damage and the loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. That sounds like arrogant confidence at first, doesn't it? Keep up your courage, men. There's going to be no loss of life, but only the ship. Maybe you're sitting there listening to Paul. He's saying, how do you know this? Verse 23, For this very night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying... Now, Paul's got revelation. By the way, you're going to notice the difference between the first counsel that he gave, where he said we're going to incur damage of the ship, or loss of the ship, loss of the cargo, and loss of our lives. Now, this counsel that Paul gives is different. We're going to lose the ship and the cargo, but not our lives. You say, what, what accounts for the difference? Was he wrong in the first instance? Well, in the first instance, Paul was talking as somebody who was an experienced at sea, an experienced traveler, looking at the situation, assessing it, giving good, wise counsel. The second time, he's actually speaking from the point of having divine revelation. The Lord came in and he said, here's what's going to happen, Paul. You're going to experience the loss of the ship and the cargo, but your lives are going to be saved. Look at verse 24. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted to you all those who are sailing with you. I want, us to, I want you to notice three things that the angel communicates to Paul. Number one, don't fear. This is the second time that's mentioned. It's going to be mentioned again. Why? Did you know what everybody on board the, the ship was doing? Fearing terribly. They had despaired of life. Paul says, don't fear, because the angel appeared, and the angel said to me, don't fear. Why not fear, Paul? Because, the angel says, you're going to stand before Caesar. That's the second thing he tells Paul. You're going to stand before Caesar. Don't fear. You're going to stand before Caesar. So the angel reiterates what Jesus had promised Paul back in chapter 23. Do you remember what it was? Just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you're going to Rome to testify for me again. And the angel reiterates all of that and says, Paul, the promise still stands. God is still going to keep His promise. 
So don't fear and don't worry because you are going to make it to Jerusalem. Now that's not very good counsel and that's not anything to take courage of. If you're one of the 275 other people, you might be asking yourself, well, what about me? Sure, you're going to stand before Caesar. You're going to Rome. But what about me? What about Luke and Aristarchus and Julius? The angel says, God has granted to you the lives of all of those that are sailing with you. So you're going to lose the ship, Paul. But you're not going to lose any lives because God has granted to you the lives of all those who are sailing with you. Now what does that tell you about Paul? If God had granted him the lives of those men, what was Paul asking for? It's an answer to prayer, friends. It tells you something about Paul. It tells you that if Paul was fearing at all, it likely was not for himself because he knew he was going to stand before Caesar. If Paul was fearing at all, he was fearing for the lives of Luke and Aristarchus and Julius and the other 275 passengers that were on board that ship. Paul was fearing for their lives. And here the angel says, God has granted to you the lives of all those who are traveling with you. There's a principle here that I want to, I want to pull out and I want you to see it because it's, it's here and it's all over the pages of Scripture. And the principle is this, friends, that many times God grants blessing to unbelievers for the sake of His elect. Many times God grants blessings to unbelievers for the sake of His elect, for the sake of the righteous. That is what God is doing here. William Hendrickson says, Unbelievers have no idea how much they owe in the mercy of God to the presence of righteous men among them. Unbelievers have no idea how much they owe in the mercy of God to the presence of righteous men among them. Sodom and Gomorrah. God would have spared that whole city for 50 people. There wasn't 50 righteous in it. There wasn't 10 righteous in it. But God would have extended mercy and grace to those people if there had been that number of people righteous in it. Do you remember Joseph? Genesis chapter 20, uh, 39, 5 says, It came about that from the time that Potiphar made Joseph overseer in his house and over all that he owned, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of whom? Joseph. Did the Lord bless the Egyptian on account of the Egyptian? No, it was because Joseph was over his house that that unbelieving man, that pagan idol worshiper, was blessed. Him, everything in his field, everything he owned, everything Joseph touched was blessed for Joseph's sake. And that blessing followed him to the prison. Genesis 39, verse 23 says, The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Friends, unbelievers have no idea how much they owe in the mercy of God to the presence of righteous men and women among them. God blesses the lives of unbelievers and the people around them because of your presence with them. You are a blessing to people. You understand that? Maybe your garden gets adequate sunshine and adequate rain. Or maybe your neighbor's garden. I should put it this way. Maybe it is that your neighbor's garden gets adequate sunshine and adequate rain because God is giving your garden adequate sunshine and adequate rain and his house happens to be right next door. It may be that your neighbor's house is protected from disaster because you live next door to him. It may be that the unbeliever is granted safe passage and safe travel in the vehicle on the trip that he's going because you're present with him. It's kind of like the individual says, I'm, I'm not afraid to fly because I know that, um, that uh, when it's my time to go, it's my time to go, but I'm always worried that it might be the pilot's time to go. And he's going to go down with them. Maybe it is that that airplane got safe travel because you were on board and God is granting you safe passage. And because God is granting you safe passage, it was everybody else as well. That's exactly what is happening here with the Apostle Paul. The Lord says, I'm giving you the lives of all of those men because you have to see Rome. And God as a gift blessed all of those people, saved all of their lives because Paul was praying for them. You ever pray for an unbeliever that God would bless them or give them something or grant them something and have the Lord do that? You know why he does that? He does it for your sake, but they get the blessing because of the presence of righteous men and women among them. That's what's happening here with Paul. Unbelievers are blessed. 
just to have this guy on board. And it makes me kind of wonder, would they have died had it not been for Paul's presence? But the Lord put Paul on board that ship, sent him out into the middle of the ocean, then he said, I'll spare all of their lives because you're going to stand before Caesar. And I'm going to bless all of them because of your presence among them. That's what the Lord does. Now here's what I want you to notice and as we as we finish this up. Notice verse 26. Paul says, we must run aground on a certain island because God had only guaranteed the safety of the prisoners on board the ship. Didn't say anything about the ship or the cargo. And so Paul says, we're going to run aground on a certain island, but our lives will be spared. God is granting those to us. And here's what I want us to learn and take away from this passage or this section of Paul's voyage and his his um, trip. From the time that Paul walks on the scene in verse 22 with this this confidence and this courage and the encouragement that he's offering to all of the sailors on board the ship, he comes across as very bold, very confident, very uh, sure of himself, uh, very brave, very courageous, all of that. And you've got to ask yourself, what is it that caused the Apostle Paul to act that way, to behave that way, to have that kind of confidence and that lack of fear and that, that trust in the Lord? What was it that caused that? You say, well, it was the presence of the angel, right? The visitation of the angel. I mean, Jim... If I had an angel appear to me, I would be confident and courageous too. If I had an angel appear to me and give me personal revelation about what was going to happen to me, I could have the same kind of confidence. No, you wouldn't. If you're a doubter or a fearful individual, you wouldn't, no matter who appeared to you. It could be Jesus himself that appeared to you, and you'd doubt his word. You know what the, you know what the secret is? You know what the key to it is? It's in verse 25. Look what Paul says. I believe God that it's going to happen exactly as he has said it's going to happen. I believe God. Friends, do you fear, do you despair, do you doubt, do you question, do you panic when things happen? And if you do, i just got to ask you more pointedly, what part of God's word do you doubt? What part of his provision, what part of his promise, what part of his providence and his protection is it that you doubt? Do you fear losing your job? Do you fear that God's going to stop providing for your needs? Don't you believe that you're more valuable than the sparrows and the lilies of the field? Don't you believe God when he says, don't worry about these things, I'll provide for your needs? I may not provide for your wants, but I'll provide for your needs. Do you doubt that part of God's word? Do you fear the future? Do you worry about what's going to happen overseas, in the Middle East, with China, with North Korea, in this country, with terrorism? Do you, do you fear all of that? It's because you're doubting God's word. Do you not believe that it's going to end up just exactly as he said it's going to end up? Do you fear death? Why do you fear death? Do you not believe that he defeated once for all him who had the power of death, that is the devil? Don't you believe that it's better to die and to depart and be with Christ than it is to remain on here in the flesh? Do you doubt those promises of God's word? Do you despair? Do you doubt? Do you get disillusioned? Do you get discouraged? Do you lose sight of who God is and what he has done? And friends, when the clouds roll in and things get dark and you're tempted to start believing that God is not in control of any of this, that somehow he's lost his bearings, it's then that you and I have to reach through the darkness and grab onto the God who is behind the storm and say to ourselves, I believe God that it will all turn out exactly as he has promised because not one word of all that he has said can fail. Not one word. Because he is the God who is behind the storm. He is the God who controls all of the elements. He is the God who controls all of the contingencies. He is the God who is working out all of His perfect will according to His perfect plan for your good, for the good of His creation, and for His eternal glory. And if you and I can't grab onto that and trust that, then we would doubt, we would despair, and we would lose heart even in the midst of an angelic appearance because we must grab onto the God who is behind the storm because He has already given to us His Word. And you and I can believe this. Father, we thank You for Your grace to us in Christ. We thank you that you are indeed the God who is behind the storm. 
You have never given to us any reason to doubt your faithfulness. You have never given to us any reason to doubt your power, your sovereignty, your goodness, or your grace. And yet we do. When things fall apart, we begin to doubt that you're in control. We begin to doubt that you are working out your purpose and your plan. And we begin to doubt your goodness and grace to us. We ask, Father, that you would forgive us for that sin of doubting. And help us, Lord, to take courage and help us to always remember that you're the sovereign God who is working out your eternal purpose, your eternal plan, and that you are worthy, so worthy of our trust, our confidence, and our obedience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.